Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Annette Bingham, and I've got Tasha Humphreys here, and this is Girl Power Half Hour. And we have got a great show for Thoughtfulness Thursday. We're going to be talking about two really unique, powerful women in their own special way. And um, I, I would love your input on our Facebook page because um, there's just so much cool information about these women. And just more reading more about them, I am so pumped about their lives, and it's such an inspiration to learn about these women, and especially the first woman who's over 60, and I'm getting there next year. So, mm-hmm. you know, to know somebody can do that at over 60. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that. But Tasha, how are you today? I'm good. Um, I actually just read something, getting, you know, getting online and getting onto the studio and um, just making sure everything is set, updating our Facebook page and such. I happened to come across an article that struck me a little bit. It's, it has nothing to do with either of our uh, strong women today that we're discussing today. It, it's just something that I know you'll definitely appreciate, some of our listeners as well. You and I both are big animal lovers. Uh, we've discussed that oh, yeah. before on the show. We both have dogs, and we're both big you know, advocates for their well-being. And uh, I just came across something on... Uh, the news line here that a sneaker company, um, Pearl Izumi, I'm assuming I'm, I'm pronouncing that right, I'm not sure, they're, they're, they make a running shoe. Um, they have an ad out that says run longer, and the image is a guy who's a, clearly a runner with these shoes on, kneeling down, trying to give CPR to his dog because he's killed his dog, because he's run so hard that his dog couldn't keep up. No way. Yes. Now, obviously, many people like you and I are outraged about it, and so this caused a lot of problems and caused a lot of controversy for the particular company. And one of the reasons is because, you know, um, experts were saying, look, I mean, this really can happen. People may feel fine when they run, and the the dog isn't necessarily fine because they'll keep following you out of loyalty, not because they're okay. And the danger right. comes if the owner isn't attentive. So this this is something that could actually happen, and, and no, you don't need to use a dog in that way in an ad. Of course, the, the actual dog for the actual ad, you know, photograph is actually fine, but the, obviously the implications it sends, it was not at all. They meant it to be humorous, quote-unquote, well, but it was not at all again? It's called Pearl Izumi, I-Z-U-M-I. Um, I personally, I, I'm a runner. I've, I've never used the shoe, so I, I don't know of them. Uh, it came out first, it seems, in a Canadian running magazine. It could be a Canadian company. I'm not sure, though. Uh, but yeah, I've never heard dog of lovers, them before. But... Yeah, I never had either. And I, But dog lovers everywhere are outraged, and certainly so am I. Uh, the ad is very striking and unfortunate, considering that we already have to fight so hard to keep uh, you know, a, c- a concern for animals alive, and certainly to keep humane treatment uh, alive and well. So that's that's a real concern. Well, and and yes, and, right. And to use them to sell something. I know. I mean, I know. how horrible is that? I mean, I can't to use them in that fathom. way. Yeah, to use them in that uh, way, you know, especially that it's just it it. If you see the ad, if you come across it, which you will, if 
if you're um, Googling anything, it's going to come up in your news feed. I, I believe that this was the, the Google news feed, but, man, it's hard hard stuff to look at and, and really sad to me that a company thought that that was funny. Oh, consumerism, got to love it. Right? <laughs> no morals, none whatsoever there. That really uh, makes me look into the minimalist living even more so. No, um, definitely. Just cutting down on what we've got because of companies like this who yeah, totally agreed. step out of bounds with an ad, something like that. Agreed. Um, I would recommend contacting the company and telling them you do yeah. not appreciate it. I totally um, agree because that should never happen again, and it doesn't matter to me how many people have been outraged and expressed that outrage to them. Uh can't be too many in my book. So, yeah, by all no, means. Absolutely Tell them how you feel about that ad. Whoa, that's horrible. Absolutely yeah, horrible. Bad. Well. Pearl Izumi, and we do not recommend you buying this product. And yes, we can no. say that. Yeah. Um, and contact them if you feel so led to do so and let them know that this is not the proper way to sell a product by, right. you know, causing even the image of a, a dog being dying. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah, so well, I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. Well, informing other people, too, which is really important. We need to sure, do that. Sure, of course. And that's why yeah. we have this show. You know, right, exactly. To bring things like this and information to people. So, Okay, deep breath in. I know. Breathe um, that out. I know. <laughs> well, what do you think? Okay, who knows who Diana Nyad is? Tasha, did you know who she was? Yes, I did. Did you know who before what happened? No, I did not know anything about her before that. I did not. See, I didn't either. And there may be a lot of people that don't know. She is the first person after like four attempts. Uh, the first one was back in in her 20s. To swim from Cuba to Florida. And that's 110 mm-hmm. miles, by the way, without wow. a shark tank or swim tank. I know. Which that in, of, in and of itself, I'm not even talking, you don't even have to put me in the ocean for 110 miles. Stick me in the ocean for two seconds without a shark tank and I'm freaking out. I'm amazed at that oh. part alone, much less 110 miles. I mean, I don't even like lakes that I can't see the bottom to because I don't know what's under <laughs> there. And I know there's no shark, but, you know, right. you just, it just, freaks me out. But I am so impressed with that. And what impresses me even more is she's 64 years old. I know. She's been a swimmer most of her life, um, very athletic most of her life. But she did, you know, stop swimming for a period of time. And then she decided so deeply inside her, this was something that she had to accomplish. Wow. And... Uh, you know that it's almost fifty four hours in the water, yeah, yeah, and what I was reading was she was throwing up constantly, she couldn't keep anything down, oh, crazy, wow. you know, why would anybody want to do that but yeah. i just, I'm so impressed with her, and um i something that really 
very humorous when I was reading about her. When she finished high school, she went into, she's from New York. Okay. She went into the Emory University mm-hmm. and got expelled. Oh, wow. She was expelled because she jumped from a fourth floor dormitory window with a parachute. You are kidding. <laughs> oh, wow, she's an adventure seeker. Yeah. She is, she is. But, I, you know, I didn't know anything about her until this event. And then I looked in a little bit more about her. And what really struck me was now she's an author, a motivational speaker. She has been for years. Um, she fights for um, sexual abuse pe- uh, victims, um, mm-hmm. and one of the determining factors of her swimming and being so dedicated to swimming and so determined to do this was her anger and her desire to overcome sexual abuse as a child at the hands of her stepfather. Oh, Wow. And then later on, when she got into swimming, she was abused by her swim coach. You're kidding. Um, no. And oh. what's, what little I read um, said that there had been more victims of this particular swim coach. Oh, so, goodness. you know, she said when she was in the water swimming, that was her place of peace and, you know, where she could uh, just kind of lose everything. She didn't didn't have care, you know. I mean, she was so focused on the swimming that she, um, that was her meditation, basically, from what I was reading, um, sure. that she was very, very angry, as, you know, she had every right to be. You know, I've got, to, I've got to interrupt here for a second and point out something that I think is very interesting, which might seem a little silly to anyone else, but for me personally, because I'm, you know, based in imagery and you know that about my mind, it seems mm-hmm. interesting to me that this woman grew up and was sexually abused not once but twice by two different men who did not have any connection with each other, one being her stepfather, one being her swim coach. And then she decides at age 64 to swim 110 miles without a shark cage because I'm quite sure she knows what predators are all about. I mean, she came up against two predatory men in her life. I'm sure sharks are the least of her worries. Right. And, And they were talking about, you know, her determination and what made her do this and and what makes other people do things like this, you know, really heroic strength, you know, things that normal people don't do, um, quote, unquote, normal. Um, But one of the things that came out was they don't do it for external gain. They do it because internally there is something there that says they have to do it. They have yeah. to to get it done. And I look at this woman and I'm thinking, okay, she suffered for 110 miles, 54 hours. She swam. She was throwing up constantly, yeah. sunburned, skin was chapped. She never came out of the water. 
for those 54 hours. She would stop. They would feed her and give her whatever she needed. And um, it just is amazing to me that she did this, that she even attempted it at 20-something, 20, 20 but that right. she finally accomplished it at 64. Exactly. And I look at that and think, okay, here I am training for a measly little 10K, <laughs> and I'm complaining every step of the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I come in after it? a run. Yeah, I come in after a run, and I collapse on the sofa, and my daughter runs and gets me ice. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, I can't do this. 110 miles, 54 yeah. hours, people. Yeah. And she's older than yeah. me. Yeah. Okay. Well, and so much for using age as an excuse because so many of us do that. I hear it every day, and I don't – I've never done it. I think, you know, you know that I don't – I'm not – wasn't a huge fan of my grandmother. But the one thing that I did learn from that woman, thank God that I did, is that she always told me age is just a number. That's all it is. It doesn't affect you in any other way. And for whatever reason, that stuck with me because pretty much nothing else other than the abuse stuck in my head that she said. But that did – Right. I'm so thankful that it did because it really irritates me when people use their age as an excuse for anything. But it certainly oh, irritates me when they it, use it as Sasha, an excuse. It, it does, and you know it does. It irritates me when they use it as an excuse to not achieve or pursue their dreams or not to become what they could have been or to continue to be who they are. In other words, even when people stop dressing the way they did or stop looking the way they look or stop being who they are because they suddenly hit an age where society expects them to be something else. Well, screw society. Society's done a lot of things to us that are not okay. I think that it's important to do whatever you want to do at any age you're doing it because age has nothing to do with anything. In fact, that is another ad campaign. That's all it is. It's society trying to sell you you an idea. You know, it's true. It's another ad campaign. You're right. You're right. Just shut me up now. Because you know, occasionally I'll use the age thing, saying, "Well, you know," and you always snap me out of it and say, Just "Shut up, Just get on with it." Why oh. oh, you and I are so good together? That's true. Even though I am quite a bit older than you. Um, well, we're going to be talking about George O'Keefe, and George O'Keefe was really kind of an amazing lady. And yeah, in her later years, she was, I think, even more amazing. I just, I just love her. As an artist, I have, even before I started painting, Georgia O'Keeffe, her, what we think about Georgia O'Keeffe's paintings is those really close-ups of the flowers and the, the southwest feel and the skulls oh, yeah. and, you know, all that. Um and she was so much more than that. Um, her art was um, abstract, and you know she did realistic work, and she did uh, her beautiful Southwest work. And but she she was born in 1887, and she was like came from dairy farmers. Her, her parents were dairy farmers, and she oh. was like the second of seven children. And she was the oldest daughter, though. And what amazes me is that 
when she was 10, she knew she wanted to be an artist. Wow. Something? She that's knew. Awesome. That's what she wanted to do. Yeah. And so her, I think she had one or two sisters that were also artistic and went to, to fine art school. But she and one of her sisters started watercolor classes with the local artist. And, you know, she really, she loved the the watercolor. And then when she got older, she went to um, Chicago where she studied at the, the School of Art there. And then she went to New York City and studied with the, uh, I can't, the, was the Art Students League, I believe. Okay. And while she was, while she was there, and I looked this painting up, and I had seen it before in, in an art class, she won a prize for an oil painting called Dead Rabbit with Copper Pot. Hmm. And the scholarship gave her a summer school session with the, the school there at Lake George, New York. And... Hmm. This painting was like a, a realistic painting of a copper pot and a dead rabbit, and it was an oil mm-hmm. painting, which why she would have wanted for something like that. It did look real, but it just kind of amazed me that, you know, she was given a prize for that. Yeah. But I look at, at when she was growing up and when she was living, and that was a tough time for a woman. Oh, my goodness, Yes. Can you imagine? And I look at her life, and she traveled all over the place. Mm-hmm. But in in 1908, she got a little upset with the art world, and she didn't think she could make a name for herself or distinguish herself above other artists because all mm-hmm. she was learning was to mimic other artists. Right. And she just couldn't find her place. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us do that. We mimic oh, sure. what everybody else is doing, and we don't search for what we're good at and how we can make right. it different. So she became an, a commercial artist for about four years, and then she was inspired to paint again um, when she was introduced to uh, an artist by, uh, by Arthur Dow. His name was Arthur mm-hmm. Dow, Arthur Wesley Dow. And um, she really liked his work, and she thought, okay, I can I can do something different and make a, you know, make a difference. Sure. So she decided to go to Teachers College in Columbia, uh, Columbia University for a couple of years. And after that, well, while she was there, she really grew as an artist because she was exploring and trying new things and she was given that opportunity to do that. And then she went to your part of the neck of the woods. She was head of the art department in West Texas State Normal College. Wow. For about two years. Yeah, from 1916 to 1918. And a funny thing that I learned about her was she was a single female, and mm-hmm. she was teaching there. Mm-hmm. And most of the the uh, faculty were men. Sure, of course. And yeah. the men loved her, but the wives didn't. Really? 
And I I got to looking at her life, and she was really, I don't know, do you ever look at pictures from people way back when, you know, in the early 1900s? Oh, sure, yeah. Extremely. They didn't didn't look great. You know, they didn't wear makeup, and they didn't, you know. But she was really an attractive woman, and she was very strong-willed. And I think the men really liked that. And she was sure of herself. And her students hated her, though, because of her strong will, and she expected the best from them. But uh, I think that's kind of... And I'm going to jump in and ask just, about... I'm going to jump yeah. in and ask about that really quick. We'll ask your opinion, actually. Okay, first of all, I don't wear any makeup either. So, <laughs> secondly, <laughs> if I... If I were to if if I were to think about it like where she was teaching and where she was coming from, I mean she is considered like the foremother of feminist art, you know. Um, oh yeah. And and so and uh, obviously you've looked at her work, you know, like the the vulgar style forms of floral images and such. I, I'm just wondering. I'm sure these male professors expected high quality as well. They probably had the same standards that Georgia O'Keeffe had. However, it may have been the first time they had a woman standing in front of them requesting those standards. And they probably were having more of a problem with a woman in authority than they were with the woman herself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I believe that. And and back then, you know, women were just not um, not out in front of people telling people what to do usually. Right. And it was I'm sure it was very difficult. But uh you know, she she was a strong woman all through her life. I can imagine, you know, being one of the oldest children, she had to be strong and had to help her kid you know, her siblings and had to help her mom and dad on the dairy farm and sure. you know, and, and make her own mark and in the art world and she had to fight for that, I'm sure. And right. when she got older and she well, she she had a friend who was a photographer, and she back in 1916 mailed some charcoals of uh, George O'Keefe's to Alfred Stiglitz in New York City at his gallery. Mm-hmm. He fell in love with her art, and what was so funny is George O'Keefe knew that he was going to be showing her art, but he mm-hmm. didn't let her know when it was going to be shown. And she was happened to be in New York City and found out that it was being shown. She oh, wow. went in. She went into his gallery, and he's, you know, a lot older than her, like twenty something oh. years older than her. Mm-hmm. She went into his gallery and said, "Do you know who I am?" And he said, "You know, you're one of the best artists, you know, anywhere." And they argued about the art, and he said, I am going to show your art because it, the world needs to see it. And so she finally said that, okay, you can show my art. But she fell, they fell in love with each other, and he was still married. And he moved her to New York City, and... He didn't get a divorce until 1924, and then they got married. But they were together from 1918 on. Oh, wow. 
And then she started spending, uh, you know, in 1929, she started spending part of her year in Taos because she loves the Southwest. She got the right. love of it from Palladora Canyon. She loved Oh, really? I did not know that. Oh. Yeah. She went out every day. She would walk uh, out in the, that vastness of canyon, you know, and then mm-hmm. she would make trips to Palladora Canyon, and she would paint Palladora Canyon. Wow. Um, but she started spending part of the year in Taos in 1929, and somebody interviewed her and said, well, um, uh, how did your, you know, how did your husband feel about you going? She said, well, he didn't have any, he didn't have any say in it. Oh, a girl. <laughs> <laughs> so she just went on with it, you know, and because that's where she wanted to be. Now, she went back and stayed with him part of the year, and then she would go and spend time in Taos. And um, she decided to live there full time uh, later on in life. And she lived there really by herself. Um, which was amazing to me. Sure, yeah. And she would she would hike all over that country. She learned to try a, drive a Model A, and she would drive it out wherever she wanted to paint, miles and miles away. And when it be, she would paint in her car when it got too hot to oh. paint outside. And she rigged it to so she could put a big canvas in there. And then during the hottest part of the day, she'd just crawl under the car in the shade. And that's where she stayed. I mean, this woman was determined <laughs> to paint these yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. And so she was um, she was a really confident woman uh, to mm-hmm. live out in that place. As confident as she was, was amazing. But as she got older, in 1972, her eyesight was compromised, but she continued to work in pencil and charcoal uh, until 1984. And then I find this interesting. There was a young man, a lot younger than her, um, named Juan Hamilton, Mm -hmm. and he was hired in 1973 to do odd jobs for her. Mm-hmm. And then he became her closest confidant. Hmm. Uh, he was a potter, but, you know, he he wasn't a very successful potter at the time. Mm-hmm. And I want to say he was like 60 years, or, or she was like 60 years her se- his senior. Oh, wow. Um, and he taught her when her eyesight went to work in clay which I think is brilliant. Yeah. Because but what what I really love about George O'Keefe was she was true to herself. She pursued her dreams without hesitation usually. Mm-hmm. She was really what you said, a, a feminist early on. And Arthur Stiglitz was a photographer, and she is probably one of the most photographed women. And he photographed a lot of erotic photos with her, and they are—they were on display. And this was in the 20s, I believe. And he displayed those uh, in a gallery. 
And they're beautiful. Absolutely beautiful photographs. And what women back then would have done that? You know, right. I, I, and she and, was very, and the, fact that she, the fact that she lived, you know, I, I think you and I are both impressed with the fact that she lived by herself during a time when women did not do that. I mean, they... They typically relied on men because that's the way society was structured. I mean, they really it was difficult for them to make it on their own. And I have read a couple of criticisms about her in the sense that people felt like even though she was the foremother of feminist art, she really relied heavily on a man to get her work out there. And therefore, that says, you know, in order to get ahead, women still have to sleep with the guy in charge. But in actuality, she didn't even want it to be shown and and she would no. have continued to paint whether it had been shown or not. So that was an inadvertent piece that really wasn't that wasn't her end all be all goal. She continued to do what she wanted to do, and she did it alone. She actually left and moved without him to New Mexico. Right, right. Which I think is is amazing. But those are our two women for today: Diana Nyad and Georgia O'Keefe, and. I just love them both. I think they're wonderful yeah. women, and I look forward to hearing more about Diane and I and reading more about what she's doing in the future because um, I just love it. And our Facebook does page she have is growing. If she, doesn't, if she doesn't have a book, she needs to write a book. I'm sure she will. Well, good. But our Facebook page is growing. Yay. Yay. Keep good. sharing. We're up to like 150, Remember. I think. Yeah. 200, and we do a giveaway, and we'll tell yeah. you all the goodies about it um, when we reach 200, but we're so excited about that. Thank you, for everybody, for sharing. We really appreciate it. And yeah. get your questions in for tomorrow, Casual Friday, and we will talk to you then. Bye.